0: The Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Man, we are in the middle of our integrity series and uh, well, I think you're going to find this a really encouraging conversation. It's on narcissism and it's not just about who you work for. It's a good look in the mirror. My guest is Chuck DeGroat and today's episode is brought to you by the Art of Leadership Academy preaching workshop. I'm hosting it Real soon, and you can register for free at preachingworkshop.com and by Convoy of Hope. To learn more about how you can get involved in sustainable development and also disaster relief around the world, go to slash carrot. Well, I hope you have been appreciating and enjoying this integrity series. We're pretty much halfway through it, and it's a mini series on the state of integrity in the church. Uh, I want to thank you so much for all the feedback on it so far. And if you have appreciated this series, here's what I'd love for you to do. Can you share it with a friend? Just let a friend know, particularly this episode, I think is going to really generate some kind of reaction. And uh, I hope that it is meaningful for you and helpful for you because, hey, here's what I want for you. I want us all to finish well. Also, I know that a lot of you are new to the show. We welcome new listeners every single month. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. And here's why that makes a difference. When you subscribe and you share and leave a rating and review, that helps the word get out. When the word gets out, we improve the podcast month after month, year after year. And we have got some killer guests I'm going to tell you about toward the end of the podcast. So thank you so much for doing that. I really appreciate it. So why narcissism? Well, I ordered Chuck De DeGroat's book. I had heard a lot about it. I read it, I was riveted and I thought it was so good. So we do some soul searching here. This is not just a look through the window, it's a look in the mirror. And Chuck and I talk about it like, am I a narcissist? Because I read his book and I thought, well, I guess I probably am. So we're gonna go through that and we are gonna look at the signs that you work for a narcissist, how to tell whether you are a narcissist, why church planters. This was probably my biggest surprise are prime candidates for narcissistic leadership and the problem with hypertherapeutic culture. The thing I love about Chuck is his approach is very nuanced, okay? So it's not like good guy, bad guy kind of stuff. He is the professor of pastoral care and Christian spirituality and the executive director of the Clinical Mental Health Counseling Program at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. He is a licensed professional counselor, and he is the author of five books. And uh, the one that we're sort of centering the conversation on, a lot of that stuff, we go in a lot of different directions, but you can find his stuff on narcissism in his book, When Narcissism Comes to Church. So uh, I hope you find this helpful. Hey, pastors, uh, before we get to today's program, got a question for you. Do you ever feel like you pour your heart into your Sunday morning message? and people are forgetting it by the time they drive away out of the parking lot to brunch. And you you know, you know, spent all week preparing it, and by Monday, it's like it's never happened. I have a 60-minute preaching workshop to help solve that problem, and I would love for you to take it. So in this short value-packed training, you're going to learn a method for writing clear and compelling takeaways that people will remember for months, even years. You're going to learn how to connect with unchurched people, and I will help you shorten your prep process. So if you are interested, you can register by July 10th to get into the preaching workshop. Just go to preachingworkshop.com. It's absolutely free. And again, registration for this round closes July 10th. Not sure when we're going to open it again, but go to preachingworkshop.com. That's brought to you by, uh, well, our work in the Art of Leadership Academy. We want you to get this for free, so go to preachingworkshop.com. And I want to tell you a little bit about my friends at Convoy of Hope. They are a faith-based nonprofit organization that does incredible work on children's feeding initiatives, women and girls empowerment, and disaster response. Last year, Convoy fed over 533,000 children every school day in 37 countries. They responded to 75 natural disasters and humanitarian crises around the world, and they do incredible work with that. And over their history, have given over $2 billion in food and supplies to more than 200 million people worldwide. And you know what? You can partner with them. If your business is looking for a partner, if your church is or you personally would like to help out, so you can feed a child every school day for just $10 a month, and you can give in a way that really provides meaningful disaster relief when a hurricane hits or a tornado hits or a flood hits. And if you want to partner with them, here's what you do. Go to convoyofhope.org carry. That's convoyofhope.org slash C-A-R-E-Y. Would love for you to partner with them. And now, part four of our mini-series on integrity in the church. We're going to talk about narcissism. Here's my conversation with Chuck DeGroat. Chuck, welcome to the podcast. It's with a little bit of nervousness that I welcome you to the podcast (laughs) today. I think I got owned in your book, but we're going to talk about that. Yeah.
1: Thank you, Carrie. It's good to be here.
0: Yeah. So narcissism, we're going to drill down on this as part of our integrity series. Um, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot. I worked for a narcissist. I think I'm married to a narcissist, mm. et cetera. I would love to start with an actual definition yeah. of like what, what is and isn't narcissism. Cause I think most of us get self-absorbed sometimes. That I mean, we're all yeah. narcissists. Like, where's where's the line? What is that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's a good question. Um well, so the sort of the textbook definition gets it uh, some characteristics of a narcissist. Uh, so we'll talk about grandiosity. We'll talk about entitlement. Uh, we'll talk about attention seeking, uh, low empathy, uh, relational and vocational impairments. And when, when you look at the constellation of those things, grandiosity, uh, entitlement, attention seeking, low empathy in particular, um, you, you, uh, you have the makings of a, of a definition there in, in those things. But oftentimes what I'll say is the underbelly of a narcissist is one who is wounded and traumatized and uses other people as a salve for their own wounds. Mm. And so... Uh, Someone who's narcissistic preys off of another, in a sense. Um, Uses people. Uses people. Gets his or her own needs met by people in and through grandiosity, entitlement, attention-seeking, etc.
0: Can you drill down on grandiosity? It's a term I often hear when you hear about people who are bipolar. For example, yeah. right? They go through this kind of grandiosity. I'm going to change the world, and then they're in the pit. But like, what do you mean? What What are some signs that you are prone to grandiosity?
1: You know, it's it's not an actual sense of power. In a sense, it's like a perceived power that one has. Okay, and um, a grandiosity is. Uh, in the psychological world, we talk about it as being compensatory in the sense that it's uh, born out of a deep sense of powerlessness or insecurity. And so uh, there's a pretense uh, that I am grandiose, that I'm above you, that I know more, that I'm better than you. uh, But it's really uh, born out of a deep fragility.
0: Mm. So it's a sense that I'm better than you, I'm the best podcaster, preacher, everybody, yeah. I've, I lead the best church, that yeah. kind of thing?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. And it okay. it'll it look different in different settings. And so grandiosity is not necessarily—and I'll often say this when people ask me about uh, large church pastors, mega church pastors, I'll often say, it doesn't matter if your church is 10,000, 1,000, or 10— If you perceive yourself to be bigger, better, stronger, faster than those ten, if you are, uh, you you know, you're you're the hero of their story, um, you suffer from grandiosity at some level.
0: Got it. Yeah, and I'm glad that we made that distinction early in this conversation because it's not just if you lead a large church or you've sold a million copies of your book that you could be a narcissist. I mean, yeah. there's there's lots of small church pastors and owners of small businesses who are narcissists. Fair.
1: Uh, that's that's fair. And I think narcissism yeah. can show up in almost any setting, any size, right? So again, right. it's a perceived sense of grandiosity at some level. So, uh, but I think in the smaller settings. Uh, we'll often make the distinction between a, a kind of grandiose narcissism and a covert narcissism, and, and in those smaller settings, you'll find what is called this more covert narcissism or vulnerable narcissism, as some put it, which is more of a smug superiority. Uh, I'm better. I'm better than they are because fewer people come to my church. We must be more mm. faithful than <laughs> that large church down the road, right? i had a
0: dollar for every time I've heard that, Chuck. Holy yeah. cow! Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so and it could be I'm more theologically correct than yeah. the people down the road that's or exactly it. All right. So basically I'm better than if you 100. start to really believe your press reports or in, inflate your press reports that's grandiosity. Yeah. yeah. So grandiosity, let's go through the list again just in case there's any more definitions because yeah. I want to be crystal clear on what we're talking about, what we're not talking yeah. about. Yeah, the second
1: one is a sense of entitlement uh that I'm entitled to respect honor, prestige, deference, whatever the case may be. The third is attention-seeking, which is self-explanatory. The fourth is the one that most people are surprised by, low empathy. Um, But uh, what I often say is a narcissist is incapable of empathy at any kind of deep level because he's incapable of self-empathy. He's so detached from from his own woundedness. And then the final one being uh, vocational and relational impairments – Almost always you'll see a debris field of pain in the, in the workplace or the relationships of a narcissist.
0: Trail of bodies behind you, disgruntled staff, toxic culture, etc. Can we go back to attention seeking? Yeah. So this is, I'd like to not exactly split an atom, but maybe come close to that. Because there's, like, I'm an evangelical. I know all of a sudden I've just attracted all kinds of labels. But like, I, I mean, what I mean by that is I believe the good news is something to be shared. Mm-hmm. Fair enough? Yeah. And we're going to talk about church planting in a minute. There is a sense in the Christian faith where it is outward focused. And you, I think it's reasonable. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, this is this is a, a free counseling session for yeah. me too, Chuck. Yeah. So yeah. But there is a sense in which there's something wrong if you don't want more people here next Hmm. month than this month. If you don't want the message, which might happen to be your message, like, you know, this podcast has so far exceeded anything I ever imagined it would. But like, I'm the guy who would like more listeners still. It's like, Carrie, choose less listeners, more listeners. There's a part of me that's like, well, I'd like more. I got to check that motive. But Mm -hmm. what do you mean by attention-seeking? Because there's a certain part that's endemic to the growth of any organization, especially the church, that that is attention-seeking. Yeah. Well, and Jesus calls us
1: to be salt and light in Matthew 5, right? And so, yeah. yeah. And go into all the world
0: and da-da-da-da-da. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But not from above, in a sense, right? So. Uh, um, and, and I think that's the the important uh, distinction uh, Jesus did not consider equality as something to be grasped or exploited but became nothing right so there's a sense in which Jesus from below from a place of humility invited people on a on a path rather than from on high demanded that they you know and, and I think that's that's what's important I think attention seeking is again born out of this deep sense of insecurity and it's really important. Uh, to 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 name that at the outset that I think uh, w- one of the distinctions I'll make that you might not hear from others is that narcissism is born out of trauma, and mm. so it's born out of a deep deep woundedness. It's not it's not genetic. It's not something that you are, you're 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 born with in a sense, right? Uh, but it's born out of pain, and so uh, and out of that pain, someone will exploit others. Uh, will. Uh, uh, seek attention um, as a salve for their own wounds.
0: Mm. Yeah, and that's one thing, that's a recurrent theme in your book. The book, by the way, for those of you who are watching, it's a fantastic book, highly recommend. It's called When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. It's so good. <laughs> it really is. Terrifying, yeah. but so good. Yeah, um, You make that point throughout that the narcissist isn't They're full of themselves, but underneath that is a deep wound, a deep pain, a deep insecurity. That most narcissists are a couple of jabs away from imploding, exploding, deflating. Can you say more about that?
1: Yeah, yeah. I I think that uh, there are these simplistic definitions of narcissism that don't account for the the larger story. And I, I call it the psychological story that is simply called a narcissist wicked. Uh, they were born wicked, they are wicked, mm-hmm. um, and I I, I'm, I have this deep conviction that people are created in the image of God, and that when God looks at us, when God looks at Carrie, when God looks at Chuck, God sees an image bearer. Now, God also sees some of the nonsense, you know, some of the pain that I've created in my life and in my world, but God sees me as an image bearer, um, but I'm also a person with a story, and you're a person with a story. And uh, some of us uh, experience pain, abuse, neglect, uh, misunderstanding—all a whole gamut of things, right? And when I do this work, and I do the work most often with pastors, we will find our way to the particularities of a person's story, and um, and and generally to a place of some pain, some woundedness. Like I, I, and, and this is not something someone chooses, someone doesn't wake up at seven years old and say, I want to be a narcissist. I (laughs) I think I'll put on a defensive armor. But quite unwittingly, uh, they begin to armor themselves up uh, as a a sort of protection or defense against um, the pain that they've uh, experienced in the world. And, you know, by 20, by 30, by 40, that armor is even thicker. And and uh, it's a really lonely place to be, to be honest. As I as I work with these men in particular, and I've worked with some women, but as I've worked with uh, many many men uh, over the years, it's a really lonely place to be, especially when they begin to disarm, so to speak.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and that that's one thing I think your book does well. First of all, you're like this is destroying us, guys. So you're not you're not excusing it. You're not. Like, it's a really good expose, I think, on, and we're going to get into that the narcissism in the church, and it seems to be pervasive these days. But there's also kind of an empathy, there's a hope for healing that you have at the same time. It's not like, let's round up all the narcissists and uh, banish them to the wilderness, never to be seen again, right? So, talk about that tension between, yeah, these people are literally destroying churches. (laughs) but also you have an empathy for them. So yeah. how do you, how do you hold that tension, Chuck?
1: Yeah, well, so the, the empathy is born out of my own, uh, my, my own work on myself. I was an arrogant, 25 uh, year old in seminary who, uh, by his third year of seminary was, was, uh, drawn into a conversation with the counseling professor of all things. Now I'm that guy at a seminary, <laughs> but, um, um, uh, where he named my arrogance and and basically sure. said, hey, if you continue on like this, you will be dangerous to the church. And wow. uh, that was a gift, a profound gift to 27 years old. And he invited me on, on an ancient path, really a, a path that St. Augustine named in the early centuries of the church, the path of self-knowledge, of humility. And uh, I went through a, a master's in clinical mental health counseling, uh, completed my MDiv and my counseling degree, but I started working with people And you know, when you work with people, you develop an empathy, you you realize that we're complex. And so I've never worked with someone who is diagnosably narcissistic, who I haven't had some empathy for at some level, because I I see him, I see her as an image bearer, um, as someone who is walled off, someone who's defending, someone who's self protecting. Uh, And and so, and that empathy has only grown over the years. And of course, I was a pastor in Orlando, I was a pastor in San Francisco. Uh, As a pastor, I'm, Look, I'm not writing the book to throw pastors under the bus, right? I'm writing it as one who has uh, some concern for what you're talking about in your series, for the integrity of of, uh, our work in ministry and for the Mm -hmm. church.
0: So, you also say early on, we live in a pretty narcissistic culture. So, there's sort of the internal trauma. Maybe, you know, there was abuse, there was some kind of trauma yeah. in your childhood. You got bullied as a kid, you were overlooked, neglected. I mean, fill in the right. blanks, right? Yeah. It goes on and on and on. But we also live in a pretty self absorbed culture. And so it's sort of in the water supply. It's the air we breathe. Yeah. How does narcissism show up? Let's talk about Western culture. We have a global audience, but I've yeah. only lived here in North America. So let's talk about that from a Western perspective. How are we narcissistic?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I in the beginning there, I, I was really reflecting on some of the literature that's been out there for now 20 or 30 years on on uh, North American culture and narcissistic culture. I mean, I, I think it's, it'd be easy to say, look at scripture uh, we see plenty of examples of narcissism throughout Scripture. Um, uh, Can you look name at, one or two? Well, I mean, look at the complexity of a, of a David, right? Um, mm. Who uh, you know, as as he matures in his own work and his own uh, in his own calling, becomes entitled himself, you know, in his in in soliciting Bathsheba. Um, and and uh, manipulating and abusing her in in um, his taking of the census, you know, to sort of count the, his numbers and his armies and his, you know, these things that uh, are, are. Look at the Apostle Paul, another sort of complicated um, person, right? Who deeply <laughs> um, who abused, who murdered, who manipulated. I, but I but I think you, you look back to the early church. You look back at uh, the church. Uh, there lots of studies nowadays on church as empire, right? In the early. Centuries of the church with the, the the sort of conflation of church and empire, uh, bishops the way they use power, popes, etc., etc., etc. So, yes, there's a contemporary conversation about narcissism that we need to have, but it's by no means a, a you know a 20th, 21st century North American phenomenon. But I do think the intersections of capitalism and individualism and contemporary technology and Um, I, the sort of hyper therapeutic movement. I'm a therapist, but I think a a kind of uh, perversion of the therapeutic movement. I think polarization, loneliness, um, uh, the celebrity culture, there are all kinds of things that sort of come together as a breeding ground for narcissism today. Um, and so, and, and of course, I talk a bit about how the contemporary church planting movement sort of arose out of this as well, too, right? And so it's it's really complicated. I often like to when I travel internationally so you've got a global audience. I like to ask them what they how they experience North American Christians, right? And they'll yeah. use words like entitled, obnoxious, arrogant, grandiose. They like big things, they like to win. They it's really interesting. You don't hear words that might normally be in let's say, the Beatitudes or attributed to the life of Jesus or the meek, fruit of the Spirit. Gentle, gentle <laughs> meek, yeah, self-controlled, right? Uh, so, Yeah. Uh,
0: well, uh, I would be remiss not to go there. You said hyper, what did you say, therapeutism? Like a
1: hypertherapeutic.
0: Uh, hypertherapeutic. I love that word. You know, I've I've kind of there's fortunately I think a little bit first nothing was trauma now everything's trauma. You know, what do you mean by hypertherapeutic?
1: Yeah, well, I think just sort of a perversion of the therapy. I, I think it was sort of a necessary evolution of in our own self understanding. The the contemporary psychological movement, and by the way, I think a lot of 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 what uh, uh, we we sort of discovered in. Uh, the, the work of psychologists in the twentieth century was already embedded in the in the tradition for centuries earlier, uh, from Kierkegaard all the way back to Augustine. So I'm a I'm a big advocate of contemporary psychology and what it teaches us about ourselves and how it expands our understanding of of what was called self-examination, self-knowledge in the Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. Um but I, I do think, it you know, like as all things, it can become um, something unto itself, you know, and it can, it can sort of take us away from the transcendent. We're no longer in a story that's bigger than us, but the story is us, right? Mm. And I think that's a problem. Um, and, and so when the story is us and simply us, uh, you've, you've become hypertherapeutic, you might say.
0: Mm. That's a good framing. I, I think, you know, I should do an episode just on that hypertherapeutic. Because listen, I've been to therapy. I've, I believe, you know, yeah. Calvin's quote, without knowledge of self, there's no knowledge of God. Right. Without knowledge of God, there's no knowledge of self. I mean, you're in yeah. Grand Rapids. That's one of the, the places where they talk about Calvin a lot these days. Yeah, I, right. I'm I'm into that. But okay, we'll put a pin in that. Maybe we'll come back to it. Um, your book was scary to read mm. because I saw some of myself in your book and I want to go to page 70. So I want to go through some of the signs that you may be a narcissist. Yeah. So help me understand this because I'm like guilty as charged in different points of my life in ministry. Always a work in progress, always trying right. to change some things. But some things are probably still too true. All Number one, I'm just calling from a list you're quoting from Craig and Carolyn Williford. Yeah. Uh, six primary characteristics. All decision-making centers on the leader. Uh, or them, the person who's a narcissist. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, impatience or lack of ability to listen to others. I'm working on that. Delegating without giving proper authority or with too many limits. Yep, been there, done that. Repenting. Feelings of entitlement, got to guard against that. Feeling threatened or intimidated by other talented staff. That was an early victory, but it it was a challenge. Needing to be the best and the brightest in the room, Hopefully an early victory. I love the guests on this show, but yeah, I've felt that. You add to that list inconsistency and impulsiveness. Please don't talk to my family or my team on that. Uh, praising and withdrawing. You can clarify that. Intimidation of others or vulnerability. What a great word. Mm-hmm. I'll spell that out. F-A-U-X as in false. Neurability. Mm-hmm. So, because I think most of us, if we're really mm-hmm. honest, if we've been a senior leader for more than 20 minutes... We probably fallen into some or a lot of those traps. Yeah. Does that mean we're all narcissists? Like, what? What's going on here? <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I, like you, I mean, I I write that list, and I'm like, oh goodness, yeah. And I, I know <laughs> people who've reported to me, worked with me, um, would have a story to tell or two or three. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Um, w- one of the more important questions, I, I think I I think I put this in the book. Um, but one of the more important questions I've asked over the years as a leader is how do you experience me?
0: Yes. And that's I think there. Mm-hmm.
1: that's, that's evident of some, I hope some humility and some curiosity. And I, I think that there's a difference between bad leadership and abuse, abusive leadership, mm. right? Mm. There are immature leaders. You, you've done work for, for a couple of decades now or more, um, around, around leadership, healthy leadership. But I, I suspect over the years you've come across some really immature leaders, and
0: well, and I've seen that in myself too. Like yeah. as a young leader, I'm like, whoa, I don't know that I was eleven for eleven, but I was probably five or six for eleven there. Yeah, and you learn and you grow, and right. I'm like, but that impulsiveness. I was, I had a meeting today with, I have a new assistant, and she was like, so you know, I need to get these things done. I'm like, look, you need to know with me, everything's urgent. Uh, just ask me. Like, is yeah. this a priority? Is it not? Yeah. And I said, my longtime assistant for a decade would got so comfortable. She would ask me, are you going to be excited about this in an hour? And mm. sometimes I'm like, probably not. She's like, okay, I'm going to put that to the bottom of the list. Yeah. But, you know, it's stuff like that, that you're always working on. Um so anyway, I disrupted, but keep That's going. That's right. That's
1: right. Yeah, you know, and so when um, when the early church fathers, when the some of the reformers, when Saint Teresa of Avila talked about self knowledge, they always connected that language to humility. Hmm. And I think I think that as a leader, as we grow in self knowledge, it's born out of a, a, a certain kind of humility. Someone comes to you and says, "Hey, you know, it's it's tough sometimes when when uh, everything's urgent." Um, and, if if you're empathetic you might just lean in in that moment and say well tell me how that impacts you yeah um i think that we begin to see the first evidences of narcissism in defensiveness and hmm. as you know you read the book if people have read the book they know that narcissism exists on a spectrum it's not a i have it or i don't have it um and so with more defensiveness with more armor with more self protection Uh, the higher you climb on the ladder of of narcissism and the testing on the spectrum of narcissism, right? And so where we find more defensiveness, uh, we'll see an elevation of narcissism. Where we find someone who is absolutely not willing to admit that they are impulsive, that they're urgent, that they praise and withdraw, that they bully, then then it's more apt that we see some narcissism there. Uh, But people like you and me who fumble and stumble our way through leadership at times— and who uh, are willing to be self aware and say, okay, well, tell me. I'd love to hear it. And uh, I'd love to know how I need to repent or what I need. Well, no, that's not evidence of narcissism. That's probably some evidence of humility.
0: Well, I hope that's true. It's kind of why I have a job today. It's just all the mistakes I made in leadership. Now I teach mm-hmm. other leaders how not to make them. I don't know whether you know uh, Jeff Henderson. Uh, does it? Uh, he did the whole four campaign, like for uh, Atlanta, for... Anyway, great guy. Mm. He asked this question years ago that I've started asking my team. What's it like to be on the other side of me? Mm. Boy, do you get feedback. Holy mm. cow. And the only thing you can do is say thank you. You can't defend yourself. You can't make an excuse. Just like, thank you. I've grown so much from that question. And then on that note, yeah. you know, we were talking about him earlier before we hit record. Tim Keller who uh, posthumously will be part of this Integrity series. I forget whether this is an interview I did with him, one of the interviews, or whether I just read this somewhere. But the question was, how do you react to critics? And he goes, well, first of all, they're probably right. Like, there's something in what they said. Mm-hmm. He said, occasionally not. But he goes, I try to look for the truth and move on. And, and that's the kind of humility you're looking at. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Okay. That's right.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay, let me jump down to this. You hinted at it, church planting movement. And you make a strong case in your book that basically, this is going to be controversial. So here we go. Because I love church planters. I love the entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah, I I mean, I think they're the key to church growth and renewing the church Mm -hmm. for the future. But you're saying church planting the way we've done it is basically we're looking for poster children narcissists. We are like the job description of a church planter matches <laughs> up with the clinical definition of a narcissist. Am I getting that right? Or like, what do you see? Yeah,
1: I, you know, so this really goes back a number of years for me. Um, I served on a, uh, on a staff uh, under a church planter early on. I was a part of a couple of different church plants. Um uh, I was in the P- uh, PCA for ten years before oh, I yeah. transitioned in two thousand eight, and so I was very familiar with Tim and the City to City movement. I got to speak in those spaces. Uh, I served on an, another church planting staff in uh, San Francisco, so I, 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 I speak as one who, um, and, and I helped co-found New House of Studies, this kind of mm-hmm. missional training set. So, I mean, I'm, I'm. I want to say to your audience, I'm for you, I'm with you, I'm, I've am i been in that world, um, and maybe that allows me to critique the world to some degree, you know, sort of like the ex-football player who's now in the booth, who's kind of talking about what it's like out there. On, the, And um, I've been doing psychological assessments in that space for 20 years. And so I know what the psychological assessments tell me. And by and large, uh, 75 to 85 percent Of the pastors that I've I've done the assessments with are uh, elevated in what we call cluster B personality disorders, and so that's histrionic personality, narcissistic personality, and it's primarily those two, not so much borderline personality or antisocial personality. Which is
0: to say, just a quick definition: what is what is uh, that first term you used? Yeah, so not the medical cluster B
1: personality disorders. Yeah, right after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think I talked about narcissism, histrionic.
0: Histrionic. What is histrionic?
1: Like a very I have a degree th- in
0: history, but missed that one.
1: Yeah, no. a very close cousin of narcissism. Okay. Um, But probably it, it, less needs to be on stage and more needs to be in the center of the drama. Let's just put it that oh, way. Okay. So addicted
0: yeah. to drama? Addicted gotcha.
1: to drama, right? Gotcha. And, and so I start to see these elevations and, and I begin to see that maybe there's something here that um, both works for church planters and but also could be a problem like a little bit of narcissism is not so bad you know the, there's a confidence there's a, a capacity mm-hmm. to inspire like how many people think about the numbers with regard to uh, public speaking like uh, how many people are scared of public speaking and yet pastors not only get up on stage and speak publicly, but on behalf of God, this is the word of the Lord, right? And so, yeah. goodness sakes, it takes a little uh, gumption to, to do what we do and to say this is the word of the Lord. And so there's a particular kind of flavor of a pastor um, that becomes a church planter, the kind of person who's an entrepreneur, the kind of person who has the boldness to be able to, to risk take, um, to, to risk failing, right? And oftentimes they they tend to be a little bit more armored. They tend to be a little bit more self-protected, and I, I remember back in the day in, in assessments they they'd say, "Hey, listen, you're gonna you're gonna uh, you're gonna absorb some pain. It's gonna be hard. Uh, you're gonna be challenged. Uh, you're gonna fail." You've got to be willing to absorb these things. You got to be tough, you know. And and we picked the tough ones out of the lot, you know. We picked the ones that weren't as sensitive, weren't as needy. We picked the one. Well, it turns out at times we were picking the ones who are maybe ripe for narcissism. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, it's really interesting. First call I got when the book was published was from the very first presbytery I served under in the PCA, uh, a church planning presbytery. Uh, in the uh, in the PCA, and the, uh, the person who's sort of leading the Presbytery at the time saying, hey, I th- seem to remember about 20 years ago, you alerting us to this. Uh, and now you've written a book, and I think we've had a problem with it. Like, a good number of our church planters over the years, there's a debris field of pain. There are staff mm. who've been wounded. Um, there have been blowups and explosions all over the place. And so, yeah, I, I do think, Though, can I say something hopeful, Carrie? Yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm talking to a number of people in these spaces who are rethinking church planting. Hmm. Uh, a number of them are are uh, people of color. Um, I think of a, a man who I've gotten to know named Yukon Chu, who's now part of Redeemer City to City, or Danae Pierre, who's a part of the Surge Network and, and actually has been a leader within uh, City to City, who are um, a man of color, a woman of color, who are rethinking uh, Uh, integrity and character in church planters, Mm. expectations around church planting, um, how we go about setting people up uh, to to truly succeed um, in the best sense of the word, and how we support them, how we invite them into the work of their own self-care, how we set them up with a spiritual support community, how we invite them to be vulnerable. They're asking really good questions that I think will uh, cultivate a healthier church planning movement in the future.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear the hope. And we're gonna end on a note of hope. So just get there, but we kind of gotta go through the mud to to get to the hope, which is which is good. But no, let so let's talk about church planners. Let's go a little yeah. bit deeper. Cause you're yeah. right. I mean, part of the reason I've I've had this conversation numerous times offline, person to person, like. We led our churches. I came to three very small churches north of Toronto. Massive change in the first decade. Sold our buildings, blah, 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 blah. And there was opposition. Not a lot of opposition, but I'm wired. I am low in empathy. It's a it's an acquired skill with me. And a lot of my colleagues, like if they got an angry email, they felt it. Now, it's not like I didn't feel it. But I had people screaming at me in the microphone at a congregational meeting. Yeah. And you know, they were upset. Now, I had the majority of people on side. I was consulting with other people and so on. And that maybe caused me a night of sleep lost or something like that, worst case scenario. But I was able to brush myself on and and move on. And I've always enjoyed public speaking, right? Like I'm flying off to Orlando. I'm going to speak to some people at a convention. Like I'm pumped for that. And it takes takes a swagger, a certain amount of swagger, to lead a church or to start a business or to be an entrepreneur. And I think entrepreneurship and apostleship are very related. Yeah. So, you know, and then there are other personality types. They're very sensitive, very generous. They love to hold the hands of people who are sick or dying or that kind of thing. I did that, but that was never what I why I got up in the morning. It was part of the job. So how do you navigate that? Because if yeah. you unselect with that, you have a whole bunch of failed church plans.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And by the way, some of those people who are more sensitive who go into say pastoral care are also working out of their wounds and using people as a cell oh. for their own wounds, right? And so it shows up in different <laughs> ways and
0: different places and so True. Um, I always paint myself as the bad guy. So keep going. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you're not a bad guy. Um I I think that there's uh when I do this work and I I do do some psychological testing if there's a bit of an elevation on the, the I would let, Concrete example, I'm not going to use a name. I was working with a mm-hmm. church planter and I said, here's your Milan clinical multi, multi-axial inventory. And I showed him the elevations and he said, oh, word that I can't say on your podcast, probably. Um, <laughs> oh, does this mean I'm disqualified from ministry? And I said, no, um, here are a couple of elevations. Let's have a talk about it. He was a little elevated on narcissism, was a little, little elevated on um, histrionic. He was a little elevated on something else. And I said, let's let's have a conversation about this. And and we we had about an hour conversation about his life, his story, his motivations, and things like that. And um, as I got to know him better, as I got to know the work that he had done, um, I, I realized that uh, uh, my best sense was that he was eminently qualified to be a church planter. Mm-hmm. One of the things I discovered as I got to know him, though, is and this is an important distinction to make. Uh, you, you may have interviewed people who have talked about attachment before, secure yeah. attachment versus insecure mm-hmm. attachment. And it was a very securely attached um, uh, young man. Uh, mm. He had been affirmed well and wisely by parents. Uh, I'm not talking about weird or kind of inappropriate ways, but I, but but um, with a deep sense that he was loved, you know, mm. um, and he was, the, and also that he was the beloved of God. And it, my sense was that he was not a man who would have to go looking for that elsewhere um, in the mirror of his congregation. I had a deep sense that he was a man who knew he was the beloved. He knew that there are people in his life. That... He was a man who didn't need ministry. He didn't need the stage or the pulpit to find his security. And go. what's interesting is you, you see a man like that, and a, but he can look a lot like a man who is not secure, but actually pretty defended, uh, and mm. working out of his own wounds and his own trauma. Mm. And so, you know that's why that that's what keeps people like me in business in some ways. We're doing, <laughs> yeah. we're doing the work of teasing these things out, but I'll, but also say, I've missed it so many times, and mm. uh, you know I've gotten the call five years later, ten years later. Hey, Chuck, didn't you do the assessment for so and so? We're seeing some things that are are really frightening. Mm.
0: So let's say uh, someone who is not open to counseling, defensive, narcissistic they're leading a church or a business they're 5 to 7 years in yeah what are you seeing you have story after story in the book but just give us an overview what would some signs or symptoms that yeah. we're being led by a narcissist what would that be
1: yeah i mean i it, as you're hinting at i mean it's going to look different from story to yeah. story and it's going to look different maybe for the mega church pastor than it does for the pastor of of a church of 60 but what I often say is, look, look at how they use or misuse power. Um, again, Jesus did not consider equality something to be grasped or exploited, right? Um, uh, those who are on the narcissistic spectrum, particularly elevated, um, grasp and exploit power. They use and they misuse power. Um, they're, they're self-serving. Um, instead of, of, um, seeing the dignity in their staff and, and uh, um, affirming their staff and elevating their staff, they're using their staff to elevate themselves. Mm. Um, uh, they're, I, one of the things I often say is they're, they're, they're often the hero or the villain of every story. Um, mm. They're the hero, uh, I'm the best, or they're the, the, the villain. People so misunderstand me, they don't understand that I'm preaching the, the gospel, I'm the faithful one here, right? Mm. And sometimes they're the martyr of their own story. Uh, so it's you got to pay attention to how they use and they misuse power there there are probably 10 or 15 or 100 other distinctions that I can give you but that's one of the primary ones. I'll, I'll ask people under them do you feel like you're empowered through his ministry through her ministry or not and and when when you're under a narcissistic leader, you'll often get the sense that people feel like something is being sucked out of them. Um, it's, it's not a life-giving space to work in.
0: Hmm. You tell one story that was, I think I've heard this a thousand times and perhaps done it once or twice. I really got into the habit of working ahead years ago and I'm so grateful because I saw the toll it was taking on the team. When I have a brilliant idea on a Saturday and we're 24 hours to Sunday, can you tell that story uh, I'm sure it was a composite, but I mean it's happened a million times, and it's probably going to happen this weekend. So, can you? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember uh, that story I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It,
1: it is all the stories are composites of, of a variety mm-hmm. of different stories, but um, it, just a particular story. To put it quite simply, that on a on a Saturday night, right before a Sunday morning service, the pastor had a, a different idea, a different direction to go in, and uh, you. you know, when you're working with a staff who putting together sound technology, songs, PowerPoint, all this stuff, um, well, they, they received it as a, as a blow. You know, they, uh, they got the call. It was, uh, um, uh, let's just say late on a Saturday night. I'm going to go in a completely different direction. Uh, I really want the kind of themes of our music. Well, the worship team had already practiced the Wednesday before. Um, all the slides had been put together, but there was a sense that, in this particular kind of scenario, that you couldn't say no, you mm. couldn't push back. You you couldn't say, "Hey, this is how that would impact me," or "Hey, we've got some guests over tonight," or "My family's in town. I'm not going to be able to actually open up the slides." Um, I, I will tell you this though: I I was I, I was uh, in the large church. I was preaching in a large church, uh, church that was uh, formerly pastored by a a, a well known personality, author. I was in what they call the green room, and uh, his former worship pastor was telling me that he would often get those kinds of of calls, like the night before. And I was asking him about it um, and how it impacted him. And he said, you know, whenever he came to me, it was always with a sense of, how, how is this going to impact you? Because I know that this is my sort of impulsive idea, but I want to know if this is going to throw us off completely. Like I want to listen to the Spirit of God but I don't want to trample on your spirit. And I thought that that was really instructive. Um, How Mm -hmm. can I both listen to the Spirit of God and not trample on other people's spirits?
0: I think that's a really good distinction. I would add to it, if it's happening every single week or on a regular (laughs) basis, you probably have a systems issue. I think the example you used, too, or one of them anyway, and, and I'll get the details wrong, but fill in the blanks was, you know, very passive aggressively. Okay, the team couldn't pull it off because the rehearsals had been done, the slides were ready to go. The pastor stands up and says, Well, we would have had beautiful graphics for this. Go ahead. Fill in the no, no, You got You finish. Oh, we would have had beautiful graphics for this, but unfortunately, you know, the team, and he calls them out by name, right? <laughs> yeah. Allison yeah. wasn't available, and neither was Jason. And uh, unfortunately, the worship team, you know, uh, she had already practiced and named names. Yeah. And they're sitting in the front row, dying as though it was somehow their fault that they didn't pull this together. It's like maybe it's your fault that you didn't prepare. Like, yeah. you ever think about that? Yeah.
1: Well, and that <laughs> happens too often. Um, and, and I would say it happens more often than people think. Um, and it, it's sad. And and that's
0: an extreme example, right? Um, oh, yeah. But it off. wasn't, unru- like, I, I've known cases where that has happened. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, I've been in that room when yeah. someone threw their team under the bus because they didn't give them enough warning. Yeah. And
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I like I like the way you put it. Maybe it's a systems issue. You know, and, and and oftentimes one of the things that we haven't said yet that's important to say is that when we're dealing with narcissism, it's not about one-off behaviors. It's about a pattern. So when I go in and I assess, consult, I've done a few investigations. I don't really do that stuff anymore, but when I've done investigations, we are looking for a pattern over time. Right. And so if I hear of like a one-off, you know, on a Saturday night, He he changed everything. And I said, well, how many times has that happened? Well, it only happened that once, but it was really frustrating to me. Mm -hmm. Well, how did he respond? Well, he was was really sorry he did it. I'm not going to make too much out of that, you know? But if that happens, as you say, week in, week out, once a month, something like that, 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 that's a pattern that we need to be uh, uh,
0: concerned about. Probably these days, especially the last couple of years, because I talk about healthy cultures having tried to make a lot of progress in that area over time, Chuck, you wouldn't believe the number of DMs I get from people who are not the senior leader, who are like, pretty sure my senior leader, my pastor is a narcissist, won't listen, won't pay attention. There's a body count everywhere. Yeah. We just, I don't want to say daily, but we probably hear about that multiple times a week. How how do you know whether you're working for a narcissist? Yeah.
1: So I get those same DMs and uh <laughs> it's tough, right? Um and I never ever I, I always want to believe uh people when, you know, at, at face value when they offer what they offer. But uh at the same time, when I and others do the work of really investigating these things, uh when I mm. do the work therapeutically, it it takes a while to sort all this stuff out. I mean I mm. I have I haven't done an investigation that has lasted less than three months, let's say, right? G- generally, like three to six months. That, that, it takes some time to tease these things out. And so uh, it, it's really important that the people who have that experience that they're sharing with us know, at first, my, my first response is, thank you for sharing it. And um and I, I believe you and I want to hear more about if I have the time or if that's what I'm being called to do, I want to hear more about what you're experiencing. Uh, it's really important that they they begin to trust their own inner experience. And a lot of people who have served under narcissists have over time dismissed their experience, dismissed mm. what they felt over time. They say, ah, you know, I, I'm just being needy. I'm just being too sensitive. I'm making too much out of this. And those who've truly had an experience of being used, abused, manipulated, um, bullied um, under a narcissistic leader have denied their experience, and and it's important for us to, to, to begin to tease that out. But even that work as a therapist, that work takes time to kind of sort out, well, how have you experienced that? What does it look like? And what kind of particular flavor of narcissism are we talking about? And here's where I might get in trouble is, is I really do think one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I think the word is overused. I think that we talk mm-hmm. about narcissism and abuse in irresponsible ways, and we conf- we conflate bad leadership at times or immature leadership with narcissism. And so when someone comes to me and says, Oh, my pastor is a narcissistic pastor, or I've been abused by this pastor, I, we've got to be really careful About how we use that language. And one of the things I say when I talk to survivors in the survivor community is if we make everyone a narcissist or everyone abuser, we, we lose, we lose any sense of, of definition whatsoever, right? Um. And so it's really important to make those distinctions. And now I lost your original question.
0: Well, the question was no, and I, I think I think that's a very good thing because if everything is trauma, nothing's trauma. If everything's narcissism, nothing's narcissism, right? And and most of us have, and I would include myself in this category, a, a, not a professional understanding of the terms that we're actually using. Right. But what has happened, and I'll get back to the original question. Then I have a bigger question is a lot of people have bad church experiences. A lot of people would say my workplace is toxic. A lot of leaders would say, because I get, this is, this is the DM I get over and over again. I love what you're saying. I love what you wrote about. I love what's in this course. However, I'm not the senior leader. My senior leader is not open to it. If I bring it to him, usually it's a him. You're right. I probably get fired or I'm nervous for my future. Are there, are there some signs that would indicate that your boss is a narcissist?
1: Yeah, so the characteristics that you uh, named earlier are signs to look for. Whenever you see the uh, manipulation of, of power, uh, the misuse of power, that's a sign. Uh, whenever you're, uh, you, your experience in an organization is such that there's not space for your full person to show up, uh, for your voice to show up, that may be a sign that you're working under someone who's trying to squelch your voice and is potentially narcissistic. Whenever you sense that there's an entitlement to success, to being right, to being respected, to some kind of not th- that may be a sign that you're working with a narcissist. Whenever you see that there are different standards for him than there are for you, and mm. I realize that there are different expectations in, within hierarchical organizations, sure. but radically different standards, you might be working with a narcissist. Whenever you experience a kind of a pattern of inconsistency, instability, uh, impulsivity, you might be working with a narcissist. Um, and then to get to that word that you used earlier, whenever someone uses um, psychological tools, the Enneagram, the Myers-Briggs, uh, the language of therapy to use to manipulate, well, you know, I'm I'm a vulnerable leader. I'm a wounded healer, like Henry Nowen says. I just read a an investigation by a, a friend named Wayne Wade Mullen r- wrote a great book called "Something's Not Right," uh, similar book to mine, but on organizations. He runs an organization called Pellucid. He does investigations. What's his name? Wayne Wade Mullen. Uh, Wade Mullen. Wade Mullen. He's up. fantastic, and he's a. I just read a lengthy investigation that he did where um, this senior leader used his vulnerability. F A U X. Oh, I'm just a I'm just a vulnerable. I'm just trying to be transparent. I'm just trying to be uh true to my Enneagram number. I'm just trying to be a wounded healer and
0: all of this. Trying to be an unhealthy eight. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right.
1: And all of this to sort of ingratiate his staff. Well, I I guess he's safe because he uses the Enneagram and the, you know, all the stuff. R- real problem there too. So um, you know, there are any number of these signs that we can see in many, many others.
0: Wow. Okay, that's super helpful. And I would encourage people, do your homework, get Chuck's book. It goes into a lot more detail than we can get to in 90 minutes. It's called When Narcissism Comes to Church. But the argument you make in the book, which I think is so convicting and alarming, is that actually the church is filled with narcissism. Like, you're, you're saying, okay, you can overdiagnose it. On the other hand, we have a serious yeah. problem here, folks. Yeah. So, you're, you're seeing this as a relatively pervasive challenge for the church. I'd love your comment and your thoughts on sort of where we've drifted or landed as a capital C church when it comes to narcissism in the West.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do think that that's right, and I, I do think it's time for us to— I think it's time for a series on integrity, by the way, Carrie, mm. as you're doing right now. <laughs> well, I'm doing my um, best,
0: my little part. Yeah. I think it's
1: time for church planting assessors and uh, leaders of networks to, to reassess um, how they, they uh, understand church planting, how they assess church planters, how they understand um, the processes and the, um, the, the, the kinds of um, logistics that go into church. I think it's time for us to have these kinds of conversations. It's one of those, Um, I call it a moment of reckoning. Other people have used that language too. Uh, There are these moments uh, in the life of the church. Uh, Phyllis Tickle wrote a a great book about 10, 15 years ago called The Great Emergence, where she says every 500 years in the history of the church, there is this moment of reckoning um, where it becomes sort of like a rummage sale, she says, for the church. And, And, um, you know, this is one of those moments where it's uncomfortable. We don't like what we see. Um, we've uh we're we sort of open up the closets and we've uh open up the door to the attic. And we're pulling things out that we we don't want exposed. Um, but but that's that's how we grow. That's how we change. That's how we grow and change individually. That's when I work with people in therapy. It's when they begin to share with me the things that they've kept secret for a long time, the things that they'd rather not look at. In themselves. And so we're we're doing that as a church right now. So, you know, have we probably under-diagnosed abuse and narcissism in the church and a church plan? Probably so. We we face these moments. The Reformation was one of those moments, too, where you know people who are responsible and in power, uh, responsible, responsible for the, the, the mission, given authority for the church, where they were misusing their power. And mm-hmm. just because we follow Jesus doesn't mean that we're immune to misusing our power. And so yeah. I have to look at myself and you have to look at yourself. And it's, uh, you, you know, it's, it's tough. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the most uncomfortable conversations I've ever had in my life is like, oh, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do that. Yeah. I am like that. So yeah. I want to look at another uh, case study that you raise. Yeah. And again, please, if you're just dialing in at this point, Dialing in. Um, This is a small church. It affects small churches. It affects large churches. It's not just people who love the stage. You can be a classic shepherd and Mm -hmm. be a narcissist because you need to be needed, et cetera. But this is a case of a female leader. We talk mostly about men. And this apparently is a a composite or a a real case study you had. And you were talking to a staff member who's working for a senior leader. And this pastor of a large church had a book deal. And the staff member says, I know she, it's female. I know she's a celebrity now, and I'm quoting. And everyone thinks she's the most amazing pastor and writer ever, but it's all ego, Chuck. If we don't support her rise in every way, we're somehow undermining her, and she's made it clear that we should find another job somewhere else. So Mm -hmm. I want to nuance that a little bit, because I can hear a lot of pastors saying, okay, there's fairness in that. On the other hand, if I have staff who are opposed to my leadership and don't want to see the church grow, what do I do? Like, where's the line in that yeah. for the senior leader, this author, quote, celebrity slash pastor, and also for the staff that work with her? Yeah,
1: that's that's a really challenging one. And I, I mean, I think— uh, <laughs> Oftentimes when I have these conversations, and I do with staff, mm-hmm. like the, a staff member like that, right, um, uh, there's no, not a clear right answer, right? Sure. There's a lot of discernment that needs to happen. And, and some of that discernment is around that staff member's emotional maturity and spiritual maturity, their capacity to differentiate within the system, their capacity to have an honest conversation, Right. And so, if if they haven't done their own work, if they're not aware of who they are and what their boundaries are and where they begin and the other, you know, if they're if they're not able to do that work, well, then they, they may need to step back and do, you know, before they have a conversation. Um, and so, there's there's some coaching involved that is very very nuanced. Um, I, I do think that when mm-hmm. I do have those conversations with people who are differentiated, who are able to have a conversation and not. Uh, not fall apart in the midst of the conversation, but to show up and offer their voice with, uh, with integrity. And then those can be really good ones, but there is a, you know, that's the, that's the, uh, the catch 22 that they're in. Like, like I'm, I'm not the senior leader. I'm called to follow. And yet it's hard to follow someone who doesn't appear to have integrity. Again, that's, those are the things that keep people like me and coaches and spiritual directors employed because we're constantly helping people in those tricky discernment conversations.
0: You know, I'm so glad I asked the question and you answered it the way you did, because you raise a really important point that too often slips my mind. We always assume, or I always assume, let me speak for me, that the person making the complaint is a more emotionally mature than the person who they are complaining against. Like if I have a problem with you, which I don't, but if I did, Chuck... My implicit assumption is I'm more spiritually slash emotionally mature than you are. But that isn't always the case.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, yeah. and this isn't victim blaming, but not yeah. everybody who lodges a complaint is secure. Now, I've seen so many pastors and so many church leaders use that as oh, she's unhinged. Oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Oh, yeah. he's been through three marriages. I'm not listening to him. So we we use it as deflection sometimes, yeah. but it isn't automatic that a complainant is seeing things accurately.
1: That's right. That's why I say it It takes mm. a while, and I'm really, really careful. And I, I'll tell you this. I mean, people come to me assuming that I'm like this narcissist hunter, you know, like <laughs> that, And I, I have people come to me for counseling, consulting, um, assuming that he's just going to stamp narcissist on my leader, on my marriage, you know, uh, just like that. Uh, he's going to call it abuse... And they're often very frustrated when I, you know, when it takes some time for me to ask questions, I I really want to understand what's going on. And again, um, if I call something abusive, that is just bad leadership, you know, Mm. um, emotionally unintelligent leadership, well, that's a problem. And I lose integrity in that. And I did that early on in my, my, uh, my counseling career, my consulting work, um, uh, there's a I, I'll be honest uh, I, I've joked around with fellow therapists that I'm I sometimes feel like I need to write a book when narcissism comes to therapy and what I mean by that is that we as therapists have to understand our power too and we when we use our power uh, to say you're absolutely in an abusive marriage you that he's absolutely a narcissist when we diagnose without ever meeting another person, that that can be a problem and so um i've just i i hope that i've grown in humility uh because not because i've done it right because i've made so many mistakes along the way um and it's come back to to bite me at times when i've prematurely called someone abusive or narcissistic or told someone to get a divorce
0: or whatever it, it's been Hmm. Well, and you didn't really deal with this directly if I'm I've read your book fairly carefully, and I don't remember you dealing with this directly. And if you did, great. If not, I'd kind of like to go there. This this is why social media is such a terrible place to have these discussions. <laughs> right? Like, or or even an email conversation or a bunch of DMs or a Facebook group that kind of went sideways or you know can you talk about that i think you hint at the me too movement and it early in your book yeah. but like yeah there are real challenges with me labeling you on social yeah,
1: it it uh i i realized that it you know at one and the same time social media can be a place where someone for the very first time might feel seen or heard and tell a story um uh, where, where they, people have come around them. They feel supported in a way they've never felt supported before. And I know particular stories of people who said, you know, in my little small town, I couldn't get anyone to listen to me. But when I, when I put this out there in social media, so-and-so called me, another person advocated for me and we were off to the races and, and really good things came about as a result of that. And it can be just awful. I mean, just awful in all the yeah. the most awful kinds of ways, right? Where there's yeah. where there are uh, barbs thrown, accusations hurled, um, w- without people really knowing one another, assumptions made, you know. And, and I think a lot of the time, what I what I like to say is that when we're on so- social media, more often than not, we're operating from a overactive sympathetic nervous system, uh, <laughs> which is to say that we are in. I call I call this uh, sort of hyper anxious nervous system storm. We're in storm. We're storming our way through our social media posts. We're scrolling, scrolling. scrolling. You're wrong. I'm with him. Retweet that. And um, and so there there's there's a really good set of posts the other day from some folks that I saw. Um, one of them was a woman who i respect a lot named amanda opelt and she was talking about her um rules for social media engagement and she talked about finding her way to center um mm. not reacting in the moment uh taking a sort of a, a inventory of how she's impact you know, but there's a very reactive kind of rather than reflective impulse on social media that i think we need to be aware of mm. and uh so it's a it's a it cuts both ways
0: yeah. And, you know, I'm not saying that to minimize, like, yeah, there are people who really don't get believed in a system and don't have support. And I'm not saying don't use social media, yeah. but it's often a lot more nuanced and probably needs to be followed up with an in-process thing. Yeah. One thing I appreciate you dealing with is narcissistic systems, because yeah. we have seen this play out way too many times over the last decade, where perhaps you do have an abusive, toxic, narcissistic leader. But the board and the congregation are bought into the system. The board doesn't do its job, doesn't hold that person accountable, dismisses complaint complainants. Um, the staff sometimes aren't complaining. They're part of the problem. Um, can you explain how the system sometimes harbors and supports and yeah. fuels narcissists? Yeah. Yeah,
1: this is really important and and sometimes even more uh more sinister it can be more painful Mm. it can be more difficult to diagnose because it's not just one person but it's actually embedded in a system sometimes systems that have been around for a long long time you and i before we got on we were talking about our history in the sort of the dutch church right and i remember very very early on we were our family i was just a kid we were leaving one very small dutch church for a, a different church and um one of the elders came to us, this old elder with a Dutch accent, the Dutch brogue, and he said, you are leaving the true church. And um, <laughs> there there was this sense of you. It, it, and it, I look back now and it was a little bit cult-like almost, you know, uh-huh. like like um, we've been around for a long time and, and our 30 people, you know, our decreasing attendance over the last 50 years is evidence that we're doing something right here. We are the true church. That was not coming from a narcissistic lead pastor that was coming from a man who was an extension of 30 or 40 other people who had been there for generations, literally mom and dad, granddad, great granddad had been there and they had built this church. We are the true church, you know? And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so we see this, uh, one of the yeah. stories I tell in the book is of a of a good friend who went into a particular um, large organization as, as the CEO of this organization, followed the founder, but there was very much a sense within the system that uh it was a sort of a, to put it vaguely a discipleship ministry hmm. and it was just sense when he went in um that that he began to hear that uh, we do discipleship way better than they do discipleship we've got better resources than they do we've got better systems than they do and immediately as he began to tease this out he was he feared that he was following a narcissistic leader, what he realized when he got there was that it was embedded within a system where it was like, Mm. our resources are the best. Um, Our people are the best. Our systems are the best. Our theology is the best. So you you really do see it embedded in systems.
0: I think one of the things that knits everything we've talked about so far in this first hour together is the absence of humility, Mm -hmm. which is a cornerstone of your thesis. So I want to start to think about, well, what does a healthy church look like? Because I think if we're really honest, most of us get owned by a piece of this, at least in a season of our leadership, right? It is a spectrum. It's a scale. Hopefully we're all getting better. Hopefully we're all learning. What are some keys to a healthier system? Because I'm sure there are people who are listening to this episode who are like, oh my gosh, the lights are coming on either in their organization or for themselves. They're like, ooh, yeah. okay, I got owned on some of that stuff. What yeah. does the beginning of getting healthy look like?
1: Yeah, so there's so many different directions that, that we could take this, right? And, and too often, here again, on social media, people will, uh, will reduce it down to if you just have better theology, or if you just have a better structure, you know, then, then the system will be healthy. We've heard that.
0: Put a new board in, it'll all be fixed. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: right. And, and th- there's something to say for, for those kinds of conversations. But I, but I do think that, um, you, you probably heard me use words like self-awareness, self-knowledge, mm-hmm. curiosity, humility. I, I do think that when there is a culture of humility, when there is a culture of curiosity, when there is a culture of, of self-awareness, where there is this sense that, uh, it's okay, uh, Carrie, for one of your staff to come to you and say, you know, when you made that last minute change, uh, that, that kind of hurt me. Can we talk about it sometime? Um, and for that to be a conversation that is, is welcomed and is okay, you know, but, but, and and where you, when you mess up and you miss that opportunity, you go back and you say, I think I missed you in that conversation. Um, that, that's when we begin to see the, the, the fruits of, of health. And I mean, I, I I think the fruits of the, we don't talk about, hopefully in your series, you're talking about the fruits of the Spirit, but very rarely do I see churches talking about the fruits of the Spirit, but love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. I and mean, what does a system that looks kind and gentle, mm-hmm. humble, loving look like, you know? And so, like I say, there's so much more uh, that we can talk about uh in terms of healthy systems and I, I like to get into uh I, I like to go into some of that iceberg thinking you know above yeah, the, well, water go there. And the water below the waterline you know kinds of, of thinking yeah well I I think that it's important when people are you just named it a moment ago uh probably you've seen this I, I've seen this when I've gone in to assess or consult in different places people will say if I just replace the board or if we yep. just change our vision I I mean you uh, T- consultants are paid 10, 20, 30, 50,000 to come in and change a vision statement and that's supposed to make a church more healthy, right? Yeah. And so those of us who do the work often say that the conversation has to take you down bit below the waterline. Below the waterline you begin to see the relational patterns that that uh are are not that remain kind of invisible. The way I like to talk about it are, in every family, there are invisible rules, family rules. Mm. Every family has them. They're not explicit. They're implicit. You know. And so someone comes to me and says, I grew up in a great family. But then we begin to tease things out. And they say, well, one of the family rules is you could never share how you were really feeling. Mm. Uh, okay, that seems significant. We need to talk about that, right? In, in some churches, well, you could never share what you're really feeling with the senior pastor. Mm. You know, so... The, the above the waterline reality is we affirm women, but the below the waterline reality is that there is a culture of misogyny within the mm-hmm. church. Or we, mm-hmm. you know, this is not a a safe place for women to uh to share their voice or share their stories or share their their gifts, right? Uh the further we go beneath the waterline, the the more we we sense some of these implicit patterns, beliefs, structures, um but they're often contradictions of what you see above the waterline. And so we are a church that affirms this. We're a church that does that. We're a church that's for the sake of this. Um, but when we go in and we we do the work, we see the contradictions. And so in systems and in people, when we do the work, we often, the higher on the narcissistic spectrum, the more, more, the more we begin to see the contradictions.
0: Mm, of the stated objective versus—because, yeah. yeah, if you're a church, very few are like, this is all about me. It's about Jesus. It's about this, right? Like nobody has a, this is all about me as their mission statement. It's always That's about a Jesus. That's
1: way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. 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 But reality, it's all about you. <laughs>
1: yeah. If we make the <laughs> right? implicit, explicit, this yeah. isn't a church for the city. This isn't a church in mission. This is a church to serve the, to grow the platform of the senior pastor, you know?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so...
1: That, that's the disruptive work, work we do when we go into systems is we make the invisible visible, we make the implicit explicit.
0: Wow. You mentioned curiosity as a healthy habit. And I'm curious about that because curiosity has become one of my stated objectives. I want to be more curious every yeah. year I get older. So maybe by the time I hit 80, if I live that long, I'll be the most curious I've ever been. Yeah. How, how is curiosity and health a part of, like, how are they related in your mind?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, and here again, I mean, people say, well, curiosity, you're just, you know, falling into some liberal, deconstructive kind of, and I'm like, well, one of the values of the Reformation is uh, reformed and o- always reforming, right? Yep. Semper Reformanda, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There is this 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 value in listening to the work of the Spirit. Um, and, uh, I mean, I think curiosity when i go in to do this work within systems or with pastors and i uh, i get the sense that it's safe to ask questions i know that i'm in a curious culture when i when i go in and um the pastor is leading not with statements but with questions with with a sense of what do we have to learn here how might we need to adapt when there is a real, uh, you know, because pastors will call me and say, we want to be, I read this book on adaptive leadership and we want to be an adaptive church, but then they tell me all the ways that they don't want to be adaptive, right? Mm-hmm. When I go in and, and, and he's like, and, and maybe it needs to be me. Maybe for this church to grow, to, to transform, to experience its next season of life and ministry, maybe I need to go. I experience curiosity. So when the pastor leads with questions, when the staff and the congregation is able to ask questions, when there's this freedom to say, where are we moving? Let, let's be open-handed about it uh, and surrendered before the Spirit. That's where I sense curiosity.
0: So someone listening to this, let's say they're 7, 8, 10 years into their leadership in a particular church. You read their mail today. They're like, uh-oh, and they want to change. Is it possible to stay in that church and then get healthier themselves and see the culture become less toxic, less self-absorbed? Is it possible to transform a church while you're transforming yourself and break down that system? Does that ever work out?
1: Yeah, you know, so here again, this is where the spectrum is helpful. And so if there's a minor elevation, you know, if there's a little bit of defensiveness, let's say it's someone who's come to me because there has been some conflict with the with the board or with staff, and and we're doing a kind of uh, analysis of things. And part of that is is some work that the pastor needs to do. And and in a short period of time, I get the sense, and others maybe get the sense that he he or she is really willing to do some some work. Um, and there's a real sincerity about it. I I might say, yeah, I think that there's a fighting chance here. I think. Um, and and again, we're coming back to a theme uh, that has come up over and over again. I, I, in that pastor, I'm not sensing as much defensiveness as I might right. sense in another pastor. But, but if you know, if if I, I sense that man, there are some walls that are going to need to be broken down in this pastor, and I, he's going to be pushing up against me. I, I I really don't think if an elder comes to me and says, "Do we have a fighting chance of of him doing the work and us doing the work and seeing transformation happen?" I'm, I'm going to be a bit more skeptical at that point. Uh, and I might lay out sort of a vision, and I've done this any number of times. I might lay out a kind of a vision of what that work could look like if it was done corporately, but it, it'll often take more time. But I've seen it, I've seen it happen where uh, pastors in particular have really started to do their own work. Now, what's really interesting, and there are plenty of stories to tell about this, um, the pastors who've done their own work and have, uh, to their own surprise and shock, self-selected out. Mm-hmm. um because they've discerned and and they'll often say you know when I first got into this I was really scared you you were gonna say I need to go that I'm the problem and now a year into the work I'm sensing that uh maybe that not that I'm the problem but that I've uh my time is up and uh there's a whole lot more humility and a m- lot more of a sense of I, I'm I'm really gonna listen to what the spirit's saying to us versus um you know act from a posture of defense of me. And uh so, so those are the really good stories that I see unfold when I
0: do the work. Mm. Yeah. What's your hope for leadership in the church moving forward, Chuck?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean broad, broadly speaking and this is going to this is like 50,000 foot and maybe a little bit um theological, but I uh the the gospel is a death to resurrection story, right? And mm. I mean this the story the capital S story is a story from the from the very beginning, uh, where where uh, um, where we stumble, where we fall, and God meets us in it. I mean, the first question that God asked Adam and Eve: is, "Where are you?" God moves toward us right from the very beginning and continues to move toward us. Then in the fl- and so, it's a story of God finding us in the midst of our pain, our confusion, our woundedness, our sin. And I do think that this is one of those moments. Um, and I think God is saying, where are you, church? You know, and that's my hope is that God hasn't stopped being God. Um, so there's no sense here in me coming up with some sort of, here, Here Carrie, is my 10-point strategy of how to fix the church. You know, I don't have one. It's not about us pulling ourselves up by the, our bootstraps. Maybe it. I, I think part of my hope is when I go to places that are being honest about how broken it is how wounded they are, um, how sinful they've been. It's in those places where I think, uh, Jesus does the best work, you know, because mm. Jesus can work with us when we're, when we're really honest before him. And so that's my hope because I'm seeing that in certain pockets of the church. I mean, I'm sure you have pastors reach out to you. I have pastors mm. reach out to me and they say, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that yeah. woman. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't want that story to be told of me 10, 15, 20 years from now. And so uh, for as much as this book is a challenging book, a hard book, I'm a, I'm a very hopeful person. And I've got, I've got, in many cases, two stories of hope for every one story of pain. So I see a lot of reason uh, for, for hope for the church.
0: Well, I'm really grateful for your voice, Chuck, and very thankful for the work you've done and bringing this out into the public. and I hope this conversation is going to help a lot of people, and uh, and I hope people do the homework when they they take it home to nuance it. Don't just you know. Go ballistic with some public campaign against whoever. Yeah, but do the nuanced, personal, soul work, the self reflection. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you think we need to talk about before we wrap up?
1: Uh, you are uh, you're good at what you do, Carrie. I don't want to boost you up too much. You know, we've been talking about oh, narcissism for. hours. I
0: don't it. need it. But, um,
1: <laughs> I I want to I want to thank you for your work, for your ministry, and um and for reading the book carefully. Um. And, uh, and taking this conversation seriously and embedding it within a larger conversation about integrity in the church. So thank you for, um, for being a hopeful voice and a wise voice in the work.
0: Well, I'm with you. I believe there are more good people than bad people. Well, you know, let's not get into theology, okay? Forget that. (laughs) But you know what I mean, right? People who are pointed in the right direction. I believe that there are people who are more selflessly motivated motivated than people who are selfishly motivated in the church and in leadership in general. And I think, you know, as uh, Solzhenitsyn said, the line between good and evil cuts through every human heart. Mm -hmm. It would be nice if there were evil people and good people, but I really believe most people are trying to make a difference. And when we have these moments for sober reflection and to be able to call an issue without like burning the house down, um, but saying, hey, we're in that house and there are good people in the house. And if we torch it, we kill us all and let's not do that. But let's talk about, okay, what needs to change? How do we carve out a healthier future? And I really am committed to young leaders. We have a ton of young leaders listening, and they don't want to sign themselves up for a life of misery or become a life of misery to other people. So I'm with you, and I really appreciate your work. I would love to have a round two with you in the future if you're open. So the book is called, you've got several books, but this one that we've been sort of majoring in, When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse, widely uh, highly recommended. It, widely available. And uh, tell us the other channels where we can find you online these days, Chuck.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm on the socials uh, at Chuck DeGroat, D-E-G-R-O-A-T. And, and I should also say I just submitted the manuscript to Tyndale for, for a, a book. It's not necessarily a follow-up, but it's called What Happens Within, and it's how we do the work within mm. instead of external. And, and so the point is, you can't really control what happened to you or what happens around you. There's a lot that happens to us, but we can pay attention to what happens within us. And so that that's a real invitation to people who are, you know, in some cases, maybe on social media and other places like that, you know, uh, uh vetting things in a way that isn't helpful to them, um, mm-hmm. to do their work. And I think that's the invitation. So yeah, Chuck to grow, uh, Chuck to is my website too.
0: Well, I can't wait to see when that new book comes out. And maybe that's a really good excuse for a round two, yeah, yeah. Chuck. Thank you so much for being with us, man. I really, really appreciate it. It's been great. Well, that was a probably the biggest deep dive I have ever done on narcissism. And uh, it's good to really look in the mirror, isn't it? And I don't know where you came out on that one, but I want to grow. <laughs> I want to learn. And it also gives you some warning signs and probably some things in the system that we need to fix. So uh, this is part of a mini series. The last few episodes have been uh, dedicated to integrity in the church. The next two are as well. I've got Colin Hansen coming up on the next show. Tell you about him in a minute. In the meantime, if you haven't checked out what's happening at my preaching workshop, go to preachingworkshop.com. It's absolutely free. I want to help you preach better sermons and I'm going to teach you in this workshop exactly how to deliver a message that people can remember for months, if not for years. And then make sure you check out the great work of Convoy of Hope. They brought you this episode, and they are feeding children every school day, and you can partner with them for just $10 a month to do that. And to partner with disaster relief around the world, go to convoyofhope.org carry. That's convoyofhope.org C-A-R-E-Y. Now, Colin Hansen coming up. He is Tim Keller's biographer, and we go into the making of Tim Keller. Here's an excerpt. And then she'd say, Colin, but don't you dare make him out to be
2: a saint. Don't you dare. He made some of us so angry. He had real problems. He was driven to his knees in prayer because of the problems that he had. And really, it was related to management. It just wasn't one of his strengths. And so Tim would often talk and may have talked with you about it as well, about how he didn't think he was a very good leader. Mm. And I strenuously objected. He was a very good leader, but he was not a good manager. Mm. And I just chalked that up to, um, there are very few leaders in any walk of life, including the church, who are good at everything. There are very few who are good at most things. Even the greatest church leaders that you know were good at some things and not at other things. And I think we don't tend to understand that. And thus, some of them don't understand it either. And they think that they have omnicompetence. Tim did not have the illusion
0: of omnicompetence. Also coming up, one more sort of tribute episode to Tim Keller, and that wraps up our integrity series. But then coming up, We have got Kevin Kelly, Sharon McMahon. You know her as Sharon Says So on Instagram. We've got Michael Bungay Stanier coming back, Richard Foster, Mike Todd, John Maxwell, and a whole lot more coming up on the podcast. So if you subscribe, you get it automatically for free. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you for all your feedback. Thank you for your support. Uh, This has gotten so much bigger than I ever thought. And, uh, man, it's a privilege to be able to do this with you all the time. And I just want to deliver the best possible, well, leadership inspiration, leadership guidance, and leadership journey into your AirPods every single week. So, uh, And I also love to give you free stuff. If you're like me, You're always looking for ways to stay informed and we have an information overload. And that's why I send out a curated newsletter every single Friday called On The Rise. And what I do is I handpick less than half a dozen things that really caught my interest over the course of the week could be an article, it could be a YouTube video, could be a podcast I'm listening to. And often it's around the church, but then I always include something that's just really from a whole other perspective. Why? Because I really believe when we have diverse learning interests, we learn the best. You can subscribe or unsubscribe anytime super easily. Just go to ontherisenewsletter.com. Join over 85,000 leaders who get that every single Friday. Go to ontherisenewsletter.com. Again, thank you so much, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this week and I hope you're enjoying these conversations. We'll be back next time with a fresh episode. And in the meantime, I hope our time together today helped you identify and maybe break a personal growth barrier you're facing.